0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The reports of globalization's demise have been greatly exaggerated. There are approximately 2,500 international investment agreements worldwide. Some are standalone treaties, others are incorporated into bilateral or regional free trade agreements. If a host government breaches their obligations, Investor State Dispute Settlement Provisions exist. And while there's been a dramatic escalation of claims over the last two decades, reforms are needed. Meet Lawrence Herman. He's a counsel at Cassidy, Levy, Kent, and Herman and Associates. He has practiced international trade and investment law and policy in government in the private sector for more than 45 years. In his working paper, Investor State Disputes, The Record and Reforms Needed for the Road Ahead. He argues that ISDS provides important elements of stability and risk mitigation for foreign investors, and that they can be modernized to take into account concerns about their impact on legitimate government policy. He joins us now. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. And ISDS process isn't new to global trade, but it really accelerated through the 80s and 90s, didn't it? It
1: really did. You know, it started several decades ago in the Uh, 1990s, basically, and it was devised in order to provide some stability in terms of uh, capital flows. Uh, One of the things that governed this was the need to get capital from the northern industrialized countries into the developing world. And so you had these international investment agreements developed in the 1990s, a little earlier than that, maybe in the late 1980s. And the whole idea was to provide a framework of stability for these capital flows. And Michael, I should mention, there there are two elements to this. Very important to keep this in mind. There's the international treaty, or the international investment agreement itself, which obliges the host country, the country that receives these investments, this capital, to comply with basic international standards of fairness, non-discrimination, No expropriation without compensation. And those are state-to-state obligations, okay? But the other element that came into play in these new agreements was something called ISDS, Investor-State Dispute Settlement. Now, you have to keep these two things separate. The Investor-State mechanism allows the private investor, I'm not talking about the government of the investor... I'm talking about the investor itself, company and enterprise, has rights to bring binding arbitration against host governments. And the rationale behind that mechanism was to give private investors an element of recourse to neutral, outside, third-party dispute settlement. Uh, And I should just add, one of the major factors was that some of the host countries or some of the countries that were receiving capital had, let's say, uncertain legal regimes or weren't entirely trustworthy in terms of their legal systems. So instead of the investor having to go to the local courts if there was a dispute, they now had, under these agreements, the right to have binding outside third parties settle the differences.
0: Are are these arbitrations triggered generally because a government enacts public policy that is seen as injurious to the investor?
1: Well, it can be. And that's one of the controversies, Michael. I'm glad you mentioned that. The ideas behind this separate dispute settlement mechanism is that if the host state, if the government uh, receiving the investment, the government of the country that gets the investment Uh, uh, passes laws that are unfair or discriminatory, that launches the right of the investor to seek uh, binding arbitration. Now, controversies have arisen because governments, from time to time, enact public policy measures that might impact on foreign investments. The question then is, are these infringing the rights of the investors under the treaty or not? And controversy has arisen, let's say, in the case of uh, climate change decarbonization measures or other things where an investor may say, wait a minute, this is not fair. It actually is discriminatory. It doesn't give my investment the same non-discriminatory treatment as the local investment gets. And, you know, this raises controversy, and the public have become concerned uh, in many uh, cases about uh, the right of private parties to challenge these public policy measures. As I said, to to achieve success in these challenges, you have to show, the investor uh, seeking recourse has to show that the measure was discriminatory, it was not fair, didn't meet the standards of fair and equitable treatment, uh, was arbitrary in one way or another. That's the basis of these investor state dispute actions.
0: While not all resolutions are reported, you do cite data that shows that more than half the time a panel decision is in favor of the investor. Has that evolved over time as we see an acceleration of the number of disputes? And, And to your example, climate change, do you expect a continued acceleration specifically because of climate change? He asks, as he's having difficulty breathing the air in Toronto today, thanks to Quebec fires.
1: Yes. Well, there's been an evolution. Uh, When this process started, there was a sense, and maybe it was uh, inaccurate or not fully informed, that investors really did have great rights because they could bring these binding arbitrations against host governments that would lead to a slew of litigation cases. And for a while it did, but over time, over time, the panels have taken a very, could I say, conservative or um, very detailed scrutiny of the measures being challenged. And the success rate is not nearly uh, what it was thought to be 30 or, or, or even 25 years ago. So the record is, I would say, evenly balanced. Sometimes the investor loses. Sometimes the investor gains uh, compensation, and uh, compensation is is really what it's what it's all
0: about. In your extensive report, you cite eight examples of legitimate criticism of investor-state dispute settlement provisions. What's the most significant one of those eight in your mind?
1: Uh, well. Are you talking about the basis for the dispute or the the outcome? I wasn't quite clear what, what your question is.
0: Well, I, I was surprised to learn that investor arbitrations are one way and that host countries don't have the right to bring arbitration cases against investors for disregarding laws.
1: Right. Well, that's one of the criticisms uh, that has been levied at the, the process. In other words, it gives the rights to private parties to sue governments but it doesn't in these treaties give governments the right to bring action against the investor. That's been one of the criticisms. I.e., it's not balanced. On the other hand, on the other hand, a capital invested in certain jurisdictions can be at the mercy of regime changes, arbitrary decisions by governments, not fully developed rules of law, and so, as I said, the rationale. Behind this whole process is to give some element of risk mitigation to the investors and ultimately to improve capital flows from the industrialized countries into the developing world. I said in my report when you um, look at the data, and it's reported in extensive uh, detail by the UN Conference on Trade and Development and the World Bank and other organizations that track these things. Over the last 25 and 30 years, there has been a significant increase in foreign direct investment from the industrialized world into the developing countries. Now, there hasn't been any uh, analysis to show that this is the result of these uh, investment agreements or the, uh, the result of having these investor state dispute settlement provisions. It's hard to say that there's a direct relationship, but... The suggestion in the data is that this mechanism of arbitrations is one of the factors that has aided the flow of capital, money, investment from the rich countries into the poor developing world.
0: What role have third-party financings of investor claims played in the number of ISDS cases before the arbitrators?
1: Well, Michael, that's another good question. I mentioned it but only briefly in my report what has happened over the years is that third parties have undertaken to finance these disputes by uh, enterprises in the developed world by industrialized country uh, enterprises companies in the develop in the developed world and these third parties provide the financing to allow uh, a dispute to be launched and to pay for all of the all of the processes and they are very expensive processes and procedures and they take a long time uh, and the return uh, for these private third-party investors is a share in the compensation if the investor succeeds ultimately this has been one of the criticisms um, over the years. the suggestion is that the availability of third-party financing, really stimulates these arbitrations. It pushes these arbitrations forward and maybe beyond their true legitimacy or their, their true uh, basis so, uh, or the strength of the case. Uh, so that, is, that has been one, one of the criticisms. I, I'm not sure there's a solution to that. I mean, third-party financing happens in civil litigation in Canada, uh, for example. It's not an unusual thing for third parties to finance litigation, and it has really escalated in the case of these uh, investment arbitrations.
0: Now, if the structure of an ISDS is ad hoc in nature, what do you see as the solution to ensuring that long-term binding decisions are in the public interest?
1: Another good question. One of the criticisms, and I just want to repeat a little bit what you've said— is that the public generally don't know who these arbitrators are? They're not permanent uh, bodies that that we have, as we do in Canada, with courts that people understand. They know they they have some familiarity with the system. The judges are nationals, locals who are known uh, in Canada, for example. Uh, but one of the and one of the criticisms is that these arbitrators come together to hear a particular case. They make binding decisions affecting public policy measures. They may, in some cases, award billions of dollars against the respondent country. And then they go back to their uh, calling, to their pursuits, to their livelihood, their practices of law or whatever they do. And so they're not permanent. And that has been a criticism. I'm not sure how legitimate that criticism is. But there has been a criticism because it affects public confidence in the system. Over time, I should say, uh, arbitrators have become very well-known, very well-skilled. There's a pool, a fairly limited pool, of qualified expert arbitrators who understand the process, understand the rules of law. And so the argument that these uh, arbitrators are not qualified uh, or somehow the impermanency of the tribunals affects the uh, the, the legitimacy of the outcome it, is overstated. These arbitrators, especially in the last 10 years, are very well-respected, highly regarded persons who understand the law and who really do a f- very, very thorough job of uh, dealing with the issue at hand.
0: See, I would have assumed we'd want to avoid even the appearance of a conflict of interest when arbitrators are appointed from a small pool of internationally known lawyers who can then work for ISDS participants elsewhere within trade law.
1: Yes, and and there has been some attempts to create permanent arbitration courts. In other words, a permanent body appointed by the states who are uh, parties to these agreements, uh, a roster that is permanent, like a court. And they can be called upon to adjudicate specific disputes. And in the Canada-European Trade Agreement, which isn't fully in force, but in in force, uh, I'll tell you why in a minute, but in the Canada-European Trade Agreement, there are provisions for the appointment of a permanent roster of arbitrators by the EU on the one hand and Canada on the other. And this would solve this notion of ad hoc bodies coming together To adjudicate on major public policy, uh, public policy issues. Now, I said the Canada-EU agreement isn't fully in force. The reason is, when it comes to these arbitration cases, it, under EU law, requires each of the EU members to ratify those provisions, and so far that hasn't happened. And while the Canada-EU agreement is in force, in respect of uh, tariff rates and market access provisions, the dispute settlement provisions and the permanent roster uh, mechanism has not come into being. But as I as I indicated, th- this recognizes the need to have some permanency in these arbitration proceedings.
0: So then what role are existing organizations like the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, the, the Court of International Arbitration, and The Hague playing in helping address the shortcomings of ISDS?
1: They do. And there are bodies like that that have a permanent roster uh, of uh, arbitrators. But the this is a roster. These arbitrators under the World Bank uh, Center for the uh, settlement of investment disputes and the the permanent court of arbitration in the Hague uh, they are not permanently appointed they're chosen by those bodies in the administration of the arbitration they have made a great deal of progress in providing permanency in this regard but it's 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 not complete whether you could ever have a permanent arbitration court let's say, even in the Canada-EU context, raises a lot of issues. I'm not sure it's fully workable. What is important is for the uh, appointing bodies, for the parties who appoint arbitrators to ensure that the appointments are of high quality, people with recognized expertise, and who have a track record in adjudication. That's very important. And I think that will go a long way in assuaging the public concerns that uh, these bodies are, you know, ad hoc and we don't know who they are and they may not really understand the law that well, yet they're making decisions that affect uh, our laws and our policies in a major way.
0: How is Canada participating in promoting transparency and ethics in international investor agreements?
1: Uh, we, You know, the Canadian government is doing a, a, a good job. They are trying to do what I've suggested in my uh, note, and that is to improve the public legitimacy of these mechanisms to ensure that the appointments are of high quality, to ensure transparency so that the issue at hand and the laws that are applied and the, the submissions, if you like, the written submissions, the pleadings of the parties are made public. To the extent possible, there are some confidentiality issues that have to be addressed, but having it open and transparent adds to the, if you you like, the the public acceptance uh, of 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 the process. And so, Canada is making efforts with its individual um, uh, treaty partners to improve on these uh, on these mechanisms. You know, Canada has thirty five of these international investment agreements with. Uh, Investor dispute settlement provisions. Uh, a lot of our bilateral treaties have, have these mechanisms and Canada is, uh, the Canadian government has been pursuing discussions with its treaty partners to find ways to enhance the public understanding of the process and the transparency of the process. Now, I, I want to add one thing. You haven't asked uh, one question I was expecting you to ask, and that is, why have we canceled investor dispute settlement with the United States under the new Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement? We call it the Kuzma. The US, United States, they call it the USMCA. Uh, investor disputes are being terminated uh, as of this month, between Canada and the United States. a very interesting development, and uh, I should explain why. Um, Please do. (laughs) Well, as I said earlier on, the rationale behind ISDS was to aid investment capital from the rich guys, the industrialized countries, into the poorer countries. As between Canada and the U.S., the view was, it really doesn't make much sense. We don't really need these risk mitigation measures between us. We have laws in both countries that give investors the right of recourse under our um, various laws and procedures domestically. And the other element was that, especially uh, during the Trump administration, uh, the view that why should the government uh, undertake some kind of uh, risk mitigation Uh, measures. Why should the governments be, in a way, guaranteeing risks for investors? Doesn't make sense. The investors must assess for themselves what the risks are when they put capital in another jurisdiction. So why should we be um, pursuing these kind of guarantees, if you like, or recourse measures for private investors? They make their choice. They assume the risk. That was what uh, the U.S. government was saying, and Canada said, "Yes, you know, you're right between us. we don't really need these mechanisms." And in fact, Australia has been withdrawing these kind of mechanisms from their bilateral investment agreements, the view being, again, that why the, the view being again that the governments should not be undertaking some way of backstopping risks by allowing these investor dispute settlement provisions.
0: So Kuzma set aside on that issue, based upon everything we've talked about over our time together today, what is the risk of making no change to the system as it stands today?
1: Well, what is the risk? That's a good question. It's hard for me to say. I think that uh, these investment arbitrations go on continually without any necessary improvements or ameliorations, without any changes, they are a fact of international international life. They're a fact of international business. There are 2,500 bilateral investment uh, agreements that have the uh, arbitration provisions within them. Making changes will be a long process, but countries like Canada and institutions like the World Bank and uh, the, uh, the OECD, are pushing the idea that there should be improvements to these mechanisms to enhance public acceptance, to ensure greater transparency, and to avoid conflicts. And I think that many governments, Canada, the United States, Australia, many of the Western governments are on that same wavelength. And so I think we will see improvements. But, you know, Michael, given the number of these agreements, 2,500 of them, Getting the entire system of global investment arbitration moved or ratcheted up to a higher level of transparency, uh, et cetera, is not an easy process. But countries like Canada are, you know, sounding the right signals, and over time, I think changes will will certainly be made to some of these agreements, and you know, international law and international. Relations evolve over time, and I think over time we will see improvements in the ISDS system overall. Bear in mind, however, that they are very important for Canadian investors. Canadian companies have sought recourse, with some success, in challenging unfair, arbitrary laws of foreign governments that have affected their investments.
0: Larry, we've been having these types of trade conversations for 20 years now. And as always, I appreciate your time and insight. Thank you. You're welcome. Lawrence Herman is a counsel at Cassidy Levy Kent and Herman and Associates. Read his working paper, Investor State Disputes, the Record and Reforms Needed for the Road Ahead at cdhow.org. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for watching.
1: You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not for profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and
0: LinkedIn. Thank you.